Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Solving the Puzzle with Dr. Datis Karazian, informing you about evidence-based strategies for autoimmune disease, brain health issues, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, gut health problems, and many other chronic health conditions. Solving the Puzzle is based on Dr. Karazian's more than 20 years of experience working with patients throughout the U.S. and Europe. His exhaustive review of scientific research, his own published peer review research, and clinical models he has innovated through trial and error in working with thousands of complex patient cases. In Solving the Puzzle, Dr. Karazian discusses the impact of diet, nutrition, lifestyle, mental and emotional states, and nutraceuticals in managing chronic health conditions, teaching you about strategies hard-won through decades of clinical practice and research. Dr. Karazian's goal is to inform you about effective models for so-called mystery symptoms and conditions so you can regain control of your health and your life. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at drknews.com. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining me today. Today, I'm going to talk about the top 10 reasons why autoimmune patients don't get better. The key thing to first discuss is like, what? how do we define the word better? And I think this is really important. To, to go over first. Now, we have to understand that autoimmune diseases or a list of diseases that are non-curable, that there's no known cure for an autoimmune disease at this point. So the key thing with autoimmune disease is that there's realistic expectations right off the bat. I noticed uh, that today's topic was why do autoimmune patients not get better, not why do autoimmune patients not get cured. So cure is a very strong word. That means the disease no longer exists. So what's realistic in managing autoimmune disease is that patients actually go into remission or their autoimmune disease is not as expressed as much. So they have greater quality of life. They have better function. So that's for the first thing that is important to understand. It's really important to understand that autoimmune disease is not caused by nutrient deficiency. So just taking taking more and more supplements not going to cure it. Um, autoimmune, autoimmune diseases for the most part are not going to be cured just by removing foods. There's some changes that would be dramatic for certain diseases like celiac disease when a person's gluten-free, but they still have an autoimmune disease that can be triggered besides uh, gluten. So the key thing is how do you, what are things that prevent autoimmune disease patients from getting better? Now I can tell you, uh, working with autoimmune disease patients for many years, the first thing to, the first thing that's really important for, for patients that are suffering from autoimmune disease is to really have a realistic expectation. When they are going from one doctor to the next and going to the next, usually they take, it takes a long time for them to finally get diagnosed. And then once they get diagnosed, they have some idea of what's going on, and then they're searching for different options for them. And if they're searching for this thing to totally turn their disease around and like it never happened, they end up really being frustrated and having a broken spirit. And especially if they're working with practitioners that really don't understand the disease process and really think if they just get rid of heavy metals, it's going to cure their autoimmune disease, or if they really just get rid of mold toxicity, it's going to cure their autoimmune disease. Those things just don't happen. Those things have an impact on maybe decreasing the immune reactivity, but it's not a cure. So let's talk about what are the things that are realistic and what are things that people that are suffering from autoimmune disease, whether it's Hashimoto's or rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis, whatever the autoimmune disease, that can really make an improvement in their function and potentially slow down the progression. So number 10, I'm going to go from 10 
all the way down to number one, and then I can take questions afterwards. So I'll need about 15 to 20 minutes to cover this top 10 list. So number 10 is really they're not taking dietary restrictions seriously enough. So most patients that have autoimmunity, they really have uh, what's called loss of tolerance. And, and loss of immune tolerance means your immune system can't distinguish foreign invaders from yourself. And when you lose tolerance, as people do with all autoimmune diseases, they start to react to their own tissues, which is the pathophysiology of autoimmune disease, but they also start to react to any other antigen. And antigens include foods, and environmental compounds and and pathogens can also really trigger their autoimmune response. So we do know just the fact that a person develops an autoimmune disease that they will then develop loss of what's called oral tolerance or dietary protein tolerance and they will have food sensitivities. You're not gonna have an autoimmune disease without losing tolerance and if you lose tolerance, you're gonna start reacting to foods more than usual. So the most common mistake people make with that have autoimmune disease, they don't take their food restrictions seriously enough. And there are certain dietary proteins that are very inflammatory and very reactive for autoimmune disease. The most common one is modern wheat gluten. Uh, I think most people have autoimmune disease have made that discovery, and uh, you don't have to have celiac disease to have gluten be an inflammatory trigger for most autoimmune diseases. And gluten has very similar uh, protein structures, and the ability to cross-react or still cause a reaction with, with, with other food proteins, especially other grains and dairy proteins. So, you know, a lot of times, first of all, if a person has an autoimmune disease, they can't go in free. There's gonna, that's going to be a major reason why they just, they're not going to get better to some degree. And then if, if for them, they need, maybe you need to go further, which is to be dairy-free also and even to be grain-free. And this is where the uh, autoimmune paleo came from. The autoimmune paleo diet was really a gluten-dairy-free type of diet. And then within that list can also be foods that are called nightshades and lectins and nitrates and lectins are things like tomato and eggplant things that really have seeds in them tend to be a major trigger so one of the key things is you know what do you do with dietary restrictions do you test your food sensitivity what do you do i think if you have an autoimmune disease and you really don't have access to testing you should just follow the guidelines of what's called an autoimmune paleo diet and then see how you feel and you need to give it at least two to three weeks of being really strict with that to really even have a chance to notice any difference because these antibody immune responses take some time to calm down and to calm down the inflammatory response. And at that point, you can really get an idea what, what, what things, how, how diet is really impacting your autoimmune disease. Uh, what I found in my practice and working with patients is that if you kind of gingerly go step by step, you don't really get a big change. So they, they first just start with gluten and then maybe just add a little bit of dairy and then it's just not as effective as just going completely autoimmune paleo diet from the very beginning and then noticing what degree of impact it has on their autoimmune disease and then backing off and then seeing if maybe maybe they don't have nightshade reactions and maybe they can slowly add in some nightshade and see if they have reactions and so forth. But this dietary restriction thing is one of the big big clues. If you can work with a healthcare professional that can help you find them, that would be great. At the very least, an autoimmune paleo diet is something that's important. And then question typically asks with autoimmunity, how long do I have to do that for? Well, you have to do it for as long as you have the autoimmune disease. And honestly, no one needs to give you a philosophy because you'll feel it. Uh, if you have an autoimmune disease and, for example, if you do react to um, gluten or dairy, when you get exposed, you're going to have an inflammatory reaction and feel it. You may not notice it if you're constantly eating those foods, but if you've restricted for some time, you will then notice it. Now, before the terms like autoimmune paleo became popular and um, 
you know, gluten-free and dairy-free was popular. I remember being in practice and I would just see patients coming in. And I remember as a new graduate right out of school, I would see these really sick patients. And they were just coming to me because I was doing all preventive medicine, nutritional consultation and so forth. I wasn't an expert in, in the field when I was right out of school, but I would notice right away these patients had autoimmune disease were bringing in their own food. They had their own Tupperware and they had to prepare their own food. There's no way they could just go out to a local restaurant and eat. And if they did, they had significant restrictions and um, it was very clear to them what they reacted to. So the one of the top reasons, number 10, for people that have uh, autoimmunity is they're just not taking their dietary restrictions seriously enough and not investigating to what food proteins can be triggers. Because if they're constantly getting a food that triggers their immune response on a daily basis, they're gonna they're gonna have a really hard time getting better. Now, number nine, the ninth reason why many autoimmune disease patients don't necessarily feel better is because they actually restrict their diet too much. So there is an opposite effect. One of the things that we do know that what's critical to maintain immune health and what's called immune tolerance is to have a very diverse microbiome. So what happens with a lot of patients that have autoimmunity is they finally figure out that, okay, I can't eat dairy, I can't eat gluten, I have to go on an autoimmune paleo diet, and okay, life sucks, and then they have to figure out what foods they can eat, and then they just finally go, okay, well, I'm going to eat the same food every day. And they eat the same food every single day, and uh, they also don't have a lot of diversity of different food fibers and plant fibers in their diet, and all of a sudden, they're microbiome bacterial species or the diversity of the gut microbiome starts to shrink and when that microbiome diversity shrinks that's been shown to really uh, impact uh, inflammation and further make the autoimmune loss of tolerance uh, more compromised and it becomes a very dangerous situation so some of the sickest uh, autoimmune disease patients that i've ever seen are the ones that just go food is just fuel i don't care and i'm just gonna eat the same thing and not gonna even eat it all and then they get really really sick and their microbiome gets less diverse so in order to be healthy in order to have a healthy immune system you have to have lots of different bacterial species in your gut and these bacterial species produced uh, what are called postbiotics they produce things like lps Uh, for example lipopolysaccharide a produced by bacteria has been shown to calm down autoimmunity and the more bacterial species you have, the more different postbiotics or polysaccharides you can make, which can then have a profound impact on the immune system. But these bacterial species really depend upon fiber to really import the gut. But you can't just take psyllium husks all day. Uh, what you really need is a diverse list of fibers. So eating a diet very diverse in plant fibers is really, really, really critical for autoimmune disease. So um, you really want to make an effort every day uh, if you have an autoimmune disease to really expand your your fiber content. Now, you still, of course, will probably need to follow the guidelines of being gluten-free or dairy-free, and and you probably have to avoid uh, vegetables that are lectins or nightshades in your diversity approach. But really making sure that you don't just eat the same food every single day and that you have a lot of diverse vegetable fibers, plant fibers in your diet will be a big, big issue in, in improving um, immune tolerance. And if you don't do that, that could also be another major reason why if you're suffering from an autoimmune disease, you may not be getting better. So let's get into the next one, which is number eight. Number eight, which is commonly overlooked, is just chemical exposures. And chemical exposures can be a major trigger for autoimmune disease. But and, and now when I talk about chemicals, I'm not talking about just like mercury fillings in the mouth. I'm talking about um, getting exposed to things like BPA uh, and fire retardants. I've 
published one paper uh, was in the Journal of Autoimmune Disease where I did a review of what, how well BPA can impact autoimmune disease and I listed all these papers. There's lots of different pathways that, for example, BPA found in plastics uh, trigger. And then things like fire retardants. Fire retardants, like sprayed on furniture, can have a major trigger on, on um, autoimmune activation and immune dysregulation. And we know that these chemicals can trigger autoimmune disease. Um, I've published some papers on these in the literature myself. Um, and um, we, the key thing is everyone's so focused on food that they're not really about pesticide exposure, chemical exposure, or plastic exposure, but these, these things do matter. So taking small steps to make sure, for example, that the flooring you have in your house doesn't have a high amount of uh, chemical release or gas release, making sure that, that those numbers are pretty low, uh, making sure that you're not constantly heating up food in plastics or um, drinking out of plastic bottles every day, making the effort to get like a glass bottle or um, uh, like a metal canister um, would be would be a good way to to really just make sure you have uh, your water contained in a non-plastic com- uh, container all day. Um, so chemical exposure is important. Pesticides, organophosphates, these are important. If you're working with a healthcare professional, they can do things and measure your immune reactivity to chemicals, like Cyrix has a profile called Array 11. Other labs can do urinary measurements of things like um, BPA or organophosphates or pesticides. And if you have very high levels, uh, you got to figure out if you're getting exposed to them on a constant, constant basis. And if you uh, need to improve your body's ability to clear out these chemicals by improving what's called biotransformation pathways. So number eight is chemical exposure, okay? And chemical exposure, again, sometimes we don't notice it because it's not like a food that you remember eating it. You can just have chemical exposure in your home. You can have your environment. The The worst things is if you have chemical exposure in your home because you're constantly involved in that environment. So trying to reduce the chemical load in your house would be a really important step if you have autoimmunity. Okay, number seven. Seventh reason why many autoimmune patients don't get better is because they have silent infections, and some infections can be devastating for certain autoimmune diseases. And what I mean by silent antigens or infections that they may have that they may not even know they have symptoms, that they may not that they don't have symptoms, so they don't even know they have the infection. I should say. So one of the most common infections in the world is H. pylori. So H. pylori is. Uh, bacterial infection that we get, and uh, it can cause ulcers and reflux in some people. Um, but when you have, for example, an H. pylori infection, you make antibodies against H. pylori, and H. pylori antibodies have been shown to, for example, trigger things like Hashimoto's and hypothyroid uh, disease. There's different people that have chronic viral infections that uh, also have relapse and remissions. Things like Epstein-Barr virus have really been shown to uh, trigger things like uh, lupus, the, the various nuclear proteins that they activate uh, when the viral load goes up. So um, one of the big clues that you may have silent antigens is uh, if you have a little chronically low white blood cell count on repeated blood work, that could be a big clue. And sometimes just having symptoms like reflux could be a factor as well. So silent antigens sometimes are a reason why um, autoimmune disease patients don't get better. Now moving on to number six, not getting enough sleep. That's a major one. So you have to realize that if you have an autoimmune disease, it's really all about how efficient your immune system modulation is throughout the day, whether you have a good day or bad day. And what I mean by immune system modulation is your immune system has to have the ability to dampen exaggerated inflammatory reactions, which is part of the 
the disease process of autoimmunity. And it just cannot do that, even just from lack of sleep for one night. So when people, when the studies have been done with uh, immune function and immune dysregulation, just uh, poor sleep one night has an impact on that. But if you go into having poor sleep on a regular basis and chronic sleep issues, that's going to be a major reason why you really can't get your autoimmune system, autoimmune disease improved. Um, I've worked with many autoimmune disease patients and sometimes, you know, they've done every, they've taken every supplement, taken every food protein, I mean, taken every supplement, they've gone off all these different food proteins, they're doing all the right things that they think they need to do, they just forget to sleep, they don't think sleep has any impact on their autoimmune disease, and, and maybe our initial clinical approach is just to work on them to get their sleep under control, which could be related to lots of other factors, um, but the, the point is you have to have proper sleep. So, you know, now there's some people that have physiological reasons why they can't sleep, which is beyond the scope today, but there's just some people that just stay up late. They just like to watch TV or they just put on, uh, can't get off social media. They're constantly on their phone. They're keeping themselves stimulated at night instead of having a ritual to try to go down. They don't plan enough time for them to have proper hours of sleep. So if you are suffering from an autoimmune disease, you really need to take a look at your daily day, uh, your daily schedule, and really figure out how do I get sufficient amount of sleep. And most people, when you ask them how many hours of sleep you need to function best, they can tell you. So if you have an autoimmune disease and as you start getting into lifestyle approaches, you really have to plan how to get enough sleep all the time. And I guarantee you, if you start to do that, you should see a dramatic major, major improvement in the degree of inflammation you have in autoimmune expression once you can get the, the amount of sleep you actually need. Um, that's, that's critical. Now, uh, number five is somewhat related to sleep, which is circadian rhythms. So circadian rhythms is really where our, it's involved with our daylight cycle. And we have a circadian rhythm where cortisol levels are high in the morning and then they go down throughout the night. And we have an opposite circadian rhythm at night with melatonin uh, being low right when we first start to go to bed and they start to elevate as we, as we start to get into deep sleep and so forth. So we have these two, two hormones. And what they found is dysfunction and dysregulation in these circadian rhythms cause significant inflammatory and autoimmune triggers with patients suffering from autoimmune diseases. Most of it has been done with research with rheumatoid arthritis since they really feel, feel significant joint inflammation and swelling if they're not sleeping properly. And uh, it can be translated to other autoimmune diseases because loss of circadian rhythm balance leads to total immune dysregulation. So not, not only is it important to have proper sleep, but it's important to almost kind of stay on a schedule where you just have this routine where you go to bed at the same time, wake up, and if you can maintain that, that would be great. But constantly having to disrupt your circadian rhythm, um, you're going to notice it's going to be really hard to, to control autoimmunity. And, and some people will be more sensitive to others, but managing circadian rhythm is is really, really an important part of the, this, this management. I can tell you without doubt, I have patients that had different occupations where they would have to um, change their circadian rhythm all the time, traveling back and forth, and it totally was a disruptor in their autoimmune disease. So if you have an autoimmune disease and you can't control your circadian rhythms, you can have a really hard time. So you really have to figure out how to do that and make sure you have a consistent schedule of like when you go to bed, when you wake up, and try to keep that system as consistent as possible. Okay, let's get on to number four. The fourth reason why a lot of autoimmune disease patients don't get better is they just don't have enough movement. So there's been also a lot of research done with sedentary lifestyles and lack of movement with autoimmune diseases. And what they all find is that movement 
has a huge impact on in controlling autoimmune flare-ups and exercise releases opioids which activate regulatory t-cells which control the autoimmune response and they've even done studies with patients with debilitating rheumatoid arthritis with severe joint pain and they found that even though their joints are swollen and injured if they move they actually have long-term benefits in their joint pain even though the actual activity itself is painful so it's really critical if you do have an autoimmune disease that you do get some movement and if you look further into the research on exercise and autoimmunity, they also find that besides sedentary lifestyles being a major issue with the, with the increasing the inflammatory response, the more intense the exercise is, uh, the, the greater opioid response there is and then some benefits. Now, the, the key thing with that is if you're going to exercise with high intensity, you can't cross over to the threshold where you crash if you have an autoimmune disease because one of the features of autoimmune disease you have excess amounts of inflammation excess amounts of oxidative stress so if you overtrain, you can actually get into bed for days and days and days so you got to figure out how high how intense you can exercise without actually crashing and if you can figure out what that level of intensity is, and for some people, it could be a seven-minute high-intensity workout. For other people, it's just a brisk walk. So everyone's going to be different. But you got to figure out what your highest amount of intensity you can perform with the ability to completely recover 100% for the next workout the next day is, and that would be the best way to really to, to activate your autoimmune response that way. So that was number four. Um, now, number three, it's also involved with opioid responses. So the third reason why a lot of autoimmune patients don't get better is they don't have enough things that activate their opioid responses, like exercise is one of them, but things in life. Like they have to have things that make them happy. They have to have goals. They have to have social relationships. Um, uh, opioid activity by uh, activities and hobbies and human interaction is essential for calming down auto autoimmunity. And I can tell you without doubt, in my practice, when I see patients suffering from autoimmunity come in and they have a strong family support system and the person has a um, goal in life, they have a mission, they have a purpose, they have things that they're shooting for that they're trying to do in their life, um, they're totally different than a person who's completely hopeless, who doesn't care about anything, and is alone and has no family support. So having uh, a group is very, very important. Now, you also got to be careful when you get into groups. You're not into um, a group where it's all a bunch of haters, you know. There's lots of forums where everyone's just complaining all the time and upset all the time, and it's just poor me, and it's, I hate, you know, I hate the healthcare system, I hate everyone in it, everyone sucks. That is going to be devastating to your immune health, to be constantly exposed to that. You definitely want to stay on um, social networks and, and have communities and people around you that are, that are positive. That makes a big, big difference when it comes to your overall health. So with autoimmune disease people, having a very um, purposeful life and, and having some purposeful goals and being engaged in things that bring you joy and basically reducing your amount of negativity are, are, are really critical. So uh, that's number three. Number two is uh, kind of related to that, but it's more specific, and this is to your specific social relationships. If you have a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend that you are not getting along with, if your work relationship is unhealthy, you're going to have a really hard time calming down your autoimmunity, despite cutting back on every food and taking every single supplement. So I have seen without doubt in my practice many chronic autoimmune disease patients that 
didn't have a chance to recover until they were able to change their uh, unhealthy work relationship or unhealthy family relationship. Um, and, and that is a big part of it. And it's typically overlooked because, you know, healthcare practitioners uh, don't want to talk about it and patients don't want to talk about it. So no one wants to talk about it. And it's easy to overlook it. And everyone's just so focused on trying to take more and more supplements and try to cut out more and more foods and different things. And, and sometimes it's uh, a uh, the, one of the biggest things, which is number two on the list, is just being in, around unhealthy relationships. So that is a game changer for many patients with autoimmune disease. And then number one, the number one reason why most autoimmune disease patients don't get better is because they're a passive patient. So they just don't take any effort. Um, they, you know, they'll go to the doctor and the doctor say there's no association with foods and autoimmune disease. And they go, okay, well, that's what they told me. Oh, well, that's what I'll do. <laughs> Or they don't, um, you know, if you have an autoimmune disease, you're probably going to have to work with many practitioners, get multiple opinions. Each practitioner has their bias. You have to do some trial and error. Think, find out what works best for you. You almost have to, you, you, you almost have to take your health into your own hands to some degree and get lots of different uh, opinions and, and try lots of different things and go through this trial and error process and figure out what actually works for you. Being a passive passive uh, patient also means you just go to a healthcare professional and you just have the practitioner do whatever they think. You don't ask questions. You don't uh, dig deeper. Those things will uh, really impact uh, your ability to, to get better if you have an autoimmune disease. So you definitely want to have a team when, you're, when you have autoimmune disease and you definitely want to make sure that you're actively involved and trying new things and being very observant of things that make you feel better. And some things that make you feel better at one point in your autoimmune disease in your lifespan may, may not work anymore in a different time span and you may have to change those things. So those are the top 10 reasons I, I have found patients that are suffering from an autoimmune disease don't get better. And I want you to also realize that in the top 10, not taking enough nutritional supplements was not one of them. <laughs> It really really comes down to more lifestyle issues uh, more than anything else that makes an impact on autoimmunity. I hope that was useful. I have my wonderful wife, <laughs> Dr. Andrea Reyes, helping me with, with answering questions. So let me, let's go through some of the questions that, that, that people ask. And by the way, thank you all for joining me, and thank you for always supporting us uh, with these and uh, if you haven't followed us on Facebook please do that we have a YouTube channel where we have these videos and uh, Dr. K News we have a newsletter that goes out regularly so uh, those are all ways you can get some of the newest information that we're organizing and putting together okay okay hi hi so Olive asks I've never heard of silent antigens before can you please explain what they are how to test yeah, so silent antigens are basically antigens that don't cause any clinical symptoms. And you can think of it as a silent infection. You might, If you Google the word silent infection, you'll probably um, find lots of different variations of them. But lots of viruses are silent infections. We have them. Um, like hepatitis C, 50% of the people, um, or 40 to 50% of the people that have hepatitis C don't have any symptoms at all. They can end up with liver failure down the road. And some people that have hepatitis C do have symptoms. So there's a percentage of people that have infections that don't have any symptoms. The two most common infections in the world that have both been shown to be triggers for autoimmune diseases are, are H. pylori infections um, and hepatitis C. 
Um, so those are definitely the two most published ones. And they had different effects and different autoimmune diseases because some of the antibodies produced with um, these infections can cross-react with specific autoimmune target proteins. So we know that um, H. pylori antibodies have the ability to, for example, bind to TPO. Um, hepatitis viral strains have been shown to, for example, cross-react with myelin. So there are there are some of these pathogens that just don't cause symptoms. And the top ones are H. hepatitis C and H. pylori, but really any kind of viral pathogen has a potential to do that. And in the clinical setting, it makes it really hard to sometimes find those. Um, but if you can't find them and you do, do, do identify them, for some people, it does make a big difference. Okay, Wendy, I've Hashimoto's and suddenly developed sensitivity and allergies to foods, to numerous foods. I'm devastated, I don't know what to do. Who's asking that? Wendy. So, Wendy, if you recently got diagnosed with Hashimoto's and, and realize you're now reacting to all these foods and you're devastated, you're kind of going through the unfortunate process of having an autoimmune disease. Most people that develop an autoimmune disease uh, all of a sudden see everything change, and one of them is they're starting to severely react to foods. There's nothing I can tell you other than to encourage you that you'll figure it out, and once you figure it out, you will feel better. So. If you don't know where to start, I would really suggest you look into autoimmune paleo diet. The autoimmune paleo diet is a really easy way to, to know what to avoid and what to follow, and that would be a good step. If you can just follow those guidelines for a bit, it makes it easier. Sometimes not knowing what to eat is a, is a big issue. But the biggest factor I've seen in my practice is you, you start to plan your meals, and you have to do that in the beginning as you get used to making some dietary changes. Once you plan your meals at home, that makes it easier. And then the next step to do is, um, you know, if you do eat out, and things have changed right now with this pandemic to some degree, but if you do eat out or have some places where you like to get food, you just have to figure out things on the menu there that are in the guidelines with autoimmune paleo diet. And usually, once you can go through that process of figuring those things out, it starts to become second nature to you, and then it'll be pretty easy. But in, but in the beginning, it is is a bit overwhelming and frustrating. But uh, I would suggest you just follow those guidelines uh, as as a place to start. And lots of great recipes and menus and different forums and different things that are on the autoimmune paleo diet that you can check out when you do a search on the web. Okay, I'm going to combine a couple questions here because it's asked a lot. Okay. Um, it's about nightshades and lectins, and yeah. people are saying, um, if I only have a mild reaction to them, yeah. is it okay if I eat them once or twice a month only? If you only have a mild reaction to foods, you should not eat them. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, um, it's going to continue to aggravate the immune response and the autoimmunity. Let me, let me kind of explain autoimmunity um, in one way. Think of a ball spinning, and that's some degree of immune activity. And if you constantly spin the ball, it gets faster and faster and faster, and then the disease progresses uh, much more aggressively. It doesn't go back to the same speed in a lot of instances. So you don't want to create this vicious cycle and overwhelm your system. Um, now listen, there, there's going to be some like, accidental exposure here and there, but like the, um, and that's going to happen, and then you know, you're going to have to kind of learn how to deal with that, whether you take lots of anti-inflammatory natural compounds or take digestive enzymes or things to address that that uh, adverse exposure. But the mindset of like, well, I kind of just react to milk, but if I have goat's milk, I just get somewhat bloating and just a little bit of inflammation. That's really that's really the wrong way to go. Um, so I would, I would totally discourage uh, that mindset if, if it's a mild reaction. Uh, you definitely want to avoid it. Because um, if you don't, you can then um, 
have your tolerance continue to get worse. So restrict restrict things you you know you have some reactions to. Okay, um, Deirdre, can someone with Hashimoto's ever reintroduce gluten, dairy, or eggs to the diet? Can someone with Hashimoto's ever reintroduce gluten, dairy, or eggs to the diet? Mm-hmm. Um, most likely, no. Um, no. So it's not one of these things where you go off the diet for eight weeks and now you've been good and now you've taken glutamine to fix your leaky gut and now you can go eat it. That doesn't work. Um, it really becomes the lifestyle change that you have to incorporate once the autoimmune disease turns on. So it, it is not going to happen. Um, and uh, I think it's important to know that. Um, because then once you change your mindset about what to expect, everything is everything is easier. This mindset of I can only I need to do this for you know a few weeks and then I can go back is, is the wrong mindset. Um, so I would say if you have Hashimoto's, it is very unlikely that you can go back and start to eat gluten in some of these uh, reactive foods. Now, there are different degrees of food sensitivity reactivity. So if you do have a person that has multiple food sensitivities um, on a food panel, for example, um, this is what we call loss of dietary tolerance, where now they're starting to show up with things like carrots and they're showing up with peaches and, and those food proteins that are not as inflammatory. And as they get their immune system healthier, they stop reacting to them as much. So those are those you can typically add back in. But the main ones, like gluten, dairy, nightshades, um, they're so aggressive in their immune response, it's very unlikely that if you have autoimmunity that even if you improve your immune tolerance, that you would be able to add those back in um, without having some inflammatory reactions. Okay, I'm kind of in in that same vein. Um, David asks, can you give an example of what to eat specifically for breakfast? I think they're just looking for maybe to change their mindset. Best way to think of what you can eat is just think like you're a caveman stuck in the middle of the woods. (laughs) You're gonna eat some kind of vegetable or fruit and you're gonna eat some kind of meat. That's about it. You're not going to anything processed. You're not going to, no, no, there's no farming grains available for you that you can eat. So you're just like scavenger, scavenger, hunter gatherer, scavenger. And that's like the basic way of uh, kind of making it very easy. There's, you know, there's sophisticated diets and menus and everything available. And we've written articles in Dr. K News and there. And we also have a program called the 3D Immune Tolerance Program, which we talk about how to improve your immune tolerance a little bit more. And we have some recipe guidelines and ways you can really improve your diversity with the veggie mashup you can also check out um, as well okay okay um what typically is an issue slash cause if your anti-tpo results are okay but your anti-tg is not yeah so if you have Hashimoto's and we have one tpo antibody or tg going up or down it doesn't really matter it just means you still have an autoimmunity um antibodies First of all, when you look at antibodies, you can't compare your antibody count to someone else's of being worse or better. Um, the only thing you can do with antibodies is kind of look at your baseline and see if they are, are really flaring up or or are really calming down to some degree um, based to your own test before and after. And just realize like a few point change is just normal variant of any kind of lab test, lab test or not. If your antibody count was 58 and it's now 62, it doesn't mean you've gotten a lot worse. If it's 58 and now it's like 580, that means there's been a major trigger. So notice there's some variance 
of let's say 10, 10 to 15 percent, even 20 percent, that could be somewhat normal uh, when you're looking at antibody counts. But look at them before and after. Now, whether it's TPA or TG uh, in the Hashimoto's thyroid literature, it doesn't seem to make any difference. It's still an inflammatory response that it's triggered at part of the uh, thyroid. And once any of the proteins in the thyroid get an inflammatory reaction, it just disrupts thyroid function in general. Okay, Maggie. What could be the reason of crashing around 2 p.m. and getting energy at evening or night? The most common reason, uh, Maggie, that you're going to crash around 2 o'clock and get energy back in is because you're hypoglycemic. So um, and when I mean by hypoglycemic, I should say you're reactive hypoglycemic, not necessarily that you have a metabolic disease causing you to have low blood sugar. But typically, when people's blood sugar levels drop, they, it becomes most noticeable around 2 to 4 o'clock. That's also when they crave sugars. And... Um, that's when you can also get shaky, lightheaded, you no know, hangry. You have to eat to feel better, and that typically involves not getting enough substantial fiber or protein prior to the afternoon. So if you're like uh, missing meals, that's or having like something really sweet for a meal or snacking with fruit, those would be really common reasons why your um, levels can crash in the afternoon. Now, if you end up you know, go into a fasting state and getting adapted into a ketogenic state, that's different. But for most people um, that aren't really focused on a ketogenic shift and into a fasting state, just missing meals or eating like a piece of fruit or high sugary foods um, throughout the day would be enough reason to have the blood sugar levels really drop in the afternoon. And by the way, that does, that does trigger um, autoimmunity very, very aggressively as well. Okay. Um, and by the way, we can add that to the list of the top 10. We can make that 11. 11. <laughs> What's 11? Blood sugar fluctuations yeah. tend to be a major trigger for autoimmune diseases as well. Uh, blood sugar fluctuations activate uh, immune cytokines, specifically IL-6, and that triggers these uh, TH17 cells and puts fuel in the fire of autoimmune diseases. Whether it's an insulin surge from eating way too much sugar or it's a drop in uh, cortisol or glucose from being hypoglycemic, uh, drop in uh, glucose from being hypoglycemic that then triggers the same response. Okay, um, Noreen, could a vegan diet, as long as it is also gluten-free, be beneficial for or detrimental to someone with Hashimoto's? Vegan. Well, a vegan diet. Um, it, it by in of itself is not going to have an impact one way or the other. It depends on how you do a vegan diet, and uh, if you're um, really if you're getting like a lot of prostate, processed vegan burger burger patties that have artificial compounds in there, that could be a major trigger. So the other key thing is you just really make sure that you're getting enough fiber and, and protein stability. And if you're on a vegan diet, but you're eating any kind of protein that's still a trigger, it can be an issue with you. So I don't think just a vegan diet itself is a key factor, one way or the other. It really depends on a specific dietary protein reactivity that is really the big issue. Okay. What about using a pressure cooker to remove lectins? Yeah, so heat, heat can re- reduce the degree of lectins. Um, and um, pressure cookers are a great way to decrease not only lectins, but uh, inflammatory compounds called glycated end products, which are a very common inflammatory trigger for people. So uh, yeah, those, those, those pressure pots are fantastic. And uh, um, it depends on your degree of sensitivity to these food proteins. Uh, you may not get 100% lectin-free removal for them, and you could still have some reactions. So you really have to see how you feel, but there is some um, 
deactivation of the glycoprotein when you use when you use heat. Kathleen, does food sensitivity automatically mean autoimmunity? No, food sensitivity does not automatically mean autoimmunity. Autoimmunity means you have antibodies to your own tissue proteins. And food sensitivity, um, you know, food sensitivity occurs in, you know, some some people say, you know, um, up to 50% or more of the population to some degree. So we all have some degree of food sensitivity. For some people, it's really clinically significant. They just feel awful and inflamed and swollen when they eat it. For other people, just they do a lab test and they see some antibody elevations. So food sensitivity itself is not the big factor. But if you have autoimmunity and you start having self-tissue proteins, when you do eat foods, it does trigger the inflammatory response. So they're not the same. Um, they both have this concept of uh, loss of tolerance, but losing your tolerance to some food proteins is less severe than losing your tolerance to your own tissue proteins, which is where autoimmune disease is associated with. Okay, Catherine, do you see the clinical value in food sensitivity tests and or other inflammation tests? I, uh, example, the GI map, ELISA, wheat zoomer, and if so, which are your favorites, which are the best? Sure, I mean, doing food antibody testing is uh, is really, a good way to evaluate if you have any reactions to food proteins. I, I prefer, it has to be, for me, the gold standard testing. The gold standard testing is a LISA methodology. Um, in my practice, I use a lab called Cyrix. Um, I don't like wheat zoomer. I, I don't, um, not a big fan of uh, a Vibrant because they don't use a LISA. They use something called microarray analysis, which is a much less effective and less expensive way of testing for it. And to me, when I see a practitioner use a microarray analysis, it just lets me know they don't understand gold standard testing. And uh, if you're a patient, you should be aware of that too. There is a gold standard form of testing for food sensitivities. And by gold standard means uh, laboratory analysis have determined has the highest degree of specificity, sensitivity, and reproducibility. And if it has all those three standards, it makes the test be classified as a gold standard. So all food sensitivity testing should be performed with a LISA methodology. Um, so that's one thing you should be aware of when you're looking at your test results. They're not all the same. There are definitely tests being done now with like a blood spot and they're doing these uh, uh, less than efficient ways of testing for foods. The most effective way to really measure food reactivity is a blood draw that is then using ELISA as the method of choice for testing. Okay, Meredith, I read your book, thyroid book years ago. I have hypothyroidism, but have never tested positive for antibodies. Do you still believe that hypothyroidism is autoimmune unless the thyroid has been removed or treated with radioactive iodine? Right. So it's not really a belief system. It's just what, what the facts are. The facts are the studies show when they do histological studies and they do antibody testing. Uh, it's very clear in that science of investigating Hashimoto's disease that 95 to 98% of them are really autoimmune. So it's not it's not a debate. It's not a philosophy. It's just the fact, and uh, um, it's 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 uh, it's something that would be the mechanism for anyone that most people have autoimmunity would, would based on those numbers would probably have antibody uh, factors as them. Some research has shown that there is a subset of patients between one to three percent of Hashimoto's patients that don't test for antibodies, but when they do histological studies like a biopsy of the thyroid, they can see that it's actually Hashimoto's. That, And those patients over time, uh, could be several years, start to then show up with antibodies. So chances are that if you do have uh, hypothyroidism diagnosed with what's called a high TSH level, um, then 
there's a most likely cause of that is really uh, Hashimoto's an autoimmune process. Okay, Lily, can you explain the physiological insulin resistance phenomenon as a result of a low-carb diet? Dietary proteins, dietary fats, um, sugars, whatever you basically eat is going to be converted to glucose. And then glucose has to get into your cells to give you energy. Well, glucose can't get into the cells unless your body, your pancreas releases a hormone called insulin to open up these little transporters on your cell walls to allow glucose to come in. So that's the normal physiological response. What happens is um, these this insulin release and then the receptors that respond to insulin to, to work, to allow glucose to get into the cell, they start to become dysfunctional if a person constantly eats too much sugar or too much carbohydrates. And then what happens in those states is there's all this significant glucose load into their bloodstream and the body stretches out a lot of insulin. And over a period of time, the receptor sites that respond to insulin lose their sensitivity to it and that's called insulin resistance. And then when that insulin resistance pathway happens, these, these circulating glucose levels um, get what's called glycolated and they become these inflammatory products that then cause inflammation all throughout the body and um, it leads to a whole host of symptoms, which typically are pain, inflammation, swelling, uh, inability to lose weight. Um, it can throw off the endocrine system, cause things like infertility. It can things cause like hair loss, and it's a major factor. So a low-carb diet basically means you go on a diet where you decrease the amount of load of glucose into your system so your insulin levels don't have to surge out as much and over a period of time even within a week or two the insulin receptor sites start to regain their sensitivity and metabolism becomes much more efficient so that's why low carb diets are really important and why high carbohydrate diets can cause a lot of inflammation and by the way causing hot lots of inflammation from eating lots of sugar and carbs does promote autoimmune inflammatory reactions as well Okay, uh, Regina, does leaky gut play into autoimmune diseases? Yes, leaky gut does play a role in autoimmune diseases, intestinal permeability. It's been proven in several animal studies. We just finished up some data analysis where we looked at 400 patients looking at various autoimmune diseases and seeing if they had intestinal permeability compared to those that don't have autoimmune disease and found a statistically significant change. We're, we're going to publish that sometime next year. But um, there is definitely lots of literature on how intestinal permeability has some role to play with autoimmune disease. However, not all patients with autoimmune disease have intestinal permeability. It's not the only mechanism that causes uh, autoimmune disease. Um, so in fixing intestinal permeability doesn't mean you're going to cure your autoimmune disease. Uh, if you do have intestinal permeability and you do restore normal intestinal tight junctions, you can decrease the it, the triggers from food proteins that may be a factor in your autoimmune disease and, and calm down some inflammation, but it's, it's, not, it's definitely not a cure. So um, intestinal permeability is one part of the pathophysiology of autoimmune disease, which is called loss of tolerance. In my um, 3D immune tolerance program, it's available at Dr. K News, I show all the different mechanisms of how you can lose tolerance. It could be because your dendritic cells are failing. It could be because your T-reg cells are failing. It could be because you have overactive Cooper cells. And um, the, the mechanisms of really improving your tolerance, one of the, the, the 3Ds distinguish uh, downregulate and diversify. One part of downregulating your constant immune response when you, when you lose your tolerance is having intestinal permeability, but there's many other ones. So it, is a, it does have a role in autoimmune disease, but it's not the, the only thing. Okay, I'm going to combine a couple questions. Okay. But mainly Colleen is asking, okay. do you have a complete protocol for healing 
lupus, MS, autoimmune diseases, like printed out they could follow? No, I do not have a complete protocol. Autoimmune disease cannot be cannot be formed into a protocol because it def- definitely requires personalized medicine. So there are some complex chronic diseases that have multi that have multivariate uh, mechanisms and have multiple triggers. So, and when you look at autoimmune disease, for example, um, there, it's not just one gene that turns on autoimmune disease. It's actually multiple genes that are expressed with multiple triggers at a certain time span that then turns on the, the disease. And then the expression of disease is impacted by multiple variables. So there is no autoimmune protocol. Please stay away from people that promote autoimmune protocols. It is, it's not, you can't do that. Um, you have to look at um, specific dietary triggers, environmental triggers, um, things we talked about, lifestyle factors like sleep, healthy relationships, uh, proper circadian rhythms. Um, so there, there are not um, a specific protocol. They're just concepts based on pathophysiology. And then each, each patient has to fit into their own personalized expressions of these disease processes and lifestyle changes that, that make an impact. And to be quite honest, working with uh, uh, autoimmune disease patients um, for many, many years, they're all completely different. And all of them require some trial and error to really figure out how to get their system to calm down and see if we can put them in remission. And also, to be quite honest, sometimes despite everything we try we can't do it so um there isn't just a protocol this is truly a disease that requires a personalized approach how high do thyroglobulin levels have to be on a blood test to be considered autoimmune what would be what could cause this if the thyroid panel come back comes back normal so when you look at thyroglobulin antibody measurements um you have to realize that you, you will have some antibodies. In, in, in actuality, there is some degree of antibodies for all tissue proteins to some degree in everyone. Um, the, the point is whether it gets to the point that's outside the laboratory range associated with confirmed disease. So you have to use your lab range. And antibody measurements done with one lab can be done with a different methodology and a different uh, um, standard operating procedures than another lab so they can have different ranges and numbers. So the, the only way that you can really look at antibodies is look at the results you get from the lab and look at the range they use. And there is no such thing as functional ranges for antibodies. They're either outside the range or they're not. So if your antibodies are outside the range, that would confirm that you have that autoimmune reactivity. If they're still within the normal reference range, it means that that lab test didn't find any autoimmune reactivity specific to that dietary protein. And antibodies do fluctuate, even though people have disease, they sometimes go up, sometimes they go down, sometimes they look normal, sometimes they don't. So you may need to test it more than once, um, but, but those are the key factors associated with antibodies. Okay. Um, this. Is there a test for leaky gut? Is there a test for leaky gut? Yes, there is a test for leaky gut. Um, Leaky gut is measured by evaluating what's called zonulin, and zonulin is a marker that is involved with uh, um, causing the tight junctions to open. It's the messenger protein. And there's also tight junction proteins themselves called occludinin. So one of the ways that we like to test for them is by measuring occludin-zonulin antibodies. Occludin-zonulin antibodies um, uh, are, are done by, I use, for example, Cyrex Laboratory to measure them. 
we did a study uh, that we published in the World Journal of Gastroenterology comparing serum zonulin levels versus uh, zonulin included antibody levels, and we found serum zonulin levels were not very accurate. That you really need to measure antibodies because the zonulin levels fluctuate all throughout the day. When you measure them with confirmed, we did we measured confirmed celiac disease, autoimmune disease patients with intestinal permeability, and with them zonulin levels fluctuate all throughout the day, but antibody levels were pretty consistent uh, all throughout the day, and. Uh, I, I think that's really the best way to measure them. Let's see, some question here from Candice. Would you please clarify the transition that happens in the body when someone transitions from IgG food sensitivity to IgG food allergy? So it's not necessarily a transition from one food sensitivity to another. They're, they're independent of each other. So IgE food allergy is different than food sensitivity, and having a food sensitivity doesn't mean you progress into an IgE food allergy. So they're different immunoglobulin responses with different antibodies and uh, it's not a progressive pattern. Okay, I hope that helps with that question. Okay, question from David. Can you give me an example of what to, to eat specifically for breakfast? Oh, I think we talked about it. We talked about if you have non-immune paleo diet, kind of eat like a caveman. And then next question is from uh, Battelle. Do you suggest grains without gluten, such as quinoa, buckwheat with Hashimoto's? So it really depends on how severe your reactivity to food proteins are. Typically, people that do have autoimmunity do better just on a grain-free diet. Um, so, you know, some people can get away with uh, uh, gluten-free grains to, to some degree, uh, but it's uh, based on each individual. So it's, there's not a standard rule across the board for autoimmunity or for Hashimoto's. Okay, next question here. Um, from Nina, what about a bad reaction to the autoimmune paleo elimination diet, perhaps for needing to eat a lot of fat to feel satiated and not digesting fats well? Yeah, I mean, if you did an autoimmune paleo diet and you had an adverse reaction, you could just have not been eating enough dietary fat. Um, or you could have a gallbladder issue and uh, that could have been a factor because you had too much fats. So typically just reducing foods shouldn't cause an issue. There had to have been some kind of other factor that really caused you to have an adverse reaction to an autoimmune paleo diet. Um, it just would not make sense that you're just removing food proteins to get a significant amount of reactions. There are um, some reported cases of what's called withdrawal syndrome with people that have gluten and dairy reactions called the gluteomorphin or, opi or, or a caseomorphin response when they go off gluten and dairy. They have some significant flares up of their um, gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, it's possible you could have had a gluteomorphin or caseomorphin reaction with that. Um, those kind of reactions are pretty rare, but they do happen. Um, if that's the case, you just may want to go gluten-free first and see if, if it's gluten that's causing you to have adverse reactions or then try dairy and see if that's an issue. If it's not gluten or dairy, um, just removing other foods in autoimmune paleo diet like lectins shouldn't, shouldn't uh, cause any of these opioid reactions. Um, so you just need to investigate that further um, as well. Okay, question from David. Is there a... Is there a blood test for hypoglycemia, or do we diagnose that only based on symptoms? So for hypoglycemia, which is low blood sugar, the standard test is to do a fasting blood glucose. And if you look at fasting blood glucose levels, they, they vary and range from lab to lab, but most labs are using somewhere around 65 to 99 as a normal uh, glucose range. If you get levels below 65, on a, on a blood test, fasting blood, fasting blood glucose test, that definitely indicates you have hypoglycemia. And in that case, you gotta figure out if there's any kind of disease process happening, because that's extremely low. 
and that's you know called true medical hypoglycemia. But most people don't suffer from that. Most people suffer from what's called a reactive hypoglycemia, functional hypoglycemia, where their glucose levels are still within that range of 65 to 100, but they get shaky, lightheaded, irritable when they miss meals. And for that, we use a, what's called a functional range or physiological range. So when we start to see glucose below uh, 85, which is still within most labs, normal laboratory reference range, but we see symptoms of shakiness, lightheadedness, irritability, crashing in the afternoon, and then when they eat, they feel better. Those are signs of a, a reactive hypoglycemic. They're reacting to their diet and lifestyle. They don't have an underlying disease causing it. So that's more common. So symptoms and blood glucose levels below 85, fasting blood glucose below 85, are big clues to determine hypoglycemia. And sometimes uh, a good way to find hypoglycemia reactions is to do what's called a uh, glucose tolerance challenge test, where they go to the lab and they get a predetermined glucose load. And then once they drink this uh, sugary uh, solution, they measure their blood glucose and insulin levels um, at baseline and then at uh, one hour and then at two hours and they can map it out and then they can see if the levels of blood sugar levels are um, spiking up or spiking way down for some people their glucose levels are you know normal fasting but then when they get a glucose load they spike up and spike down like a big roller coaster and they have these hypoglycemic patterns throughout the day uh, and that's due to some degree of insulin insulin re uh, resistance as well okay next question here from Genevieve. If you suspect you may you might have an autoimmune disease or the start of one, is there a comprehensive test you recommend that could tell you what may be affected? Yeah, so if you think if you think you may have an autoimmune disease, um, you could kind of look at what symptoms you have. Like if you're having joint swelling and joint pain, you would check more of a rheumatoid panel. If you think you're having neurological symptoms, maybe you might want to check um, myelin antibodies and so forth. So they're, they're kind of uh, specific to um, which target protein that could be involved. And those are for what I, they call tissue-specific autoimmunities. And then there's another cluster of autoimmune diseases that are called systemic autoimmune diseases or arthritic autoimmune diseases. And then they have their own laboratory markers, like uh, things like uh, ANA testing, for example. So there's a long list of different um, markers you can use. It's not just like you do one test to go, you have autoimmune disease. It's very specific to which tissue proteins involved. There is a test I do use in my practice from La from Cyrex Laboratory, which is called Array Number 5, and it screens 24 tissue proteins to kind of get a screen of if there's any autoimmune reactivity happening. That has to be ordered by, by a licensed healthcare professional. Okay, and then I got one last question here from Maria. I would love to eat a diverse diet, but all foods except for three cause various reactions. Mast cell meds and supplements haven't helped. What else can be done? So, you know, when you're looking at people that have s significant reactions to most foods that they eat, there is a point where immune tolerance gets so compromised that that becomes a, a major issue. And um, this is where you might have to do some microdosing um, with small amounts of proteins over a period of time to kind of build up tolerance to it. Um, but it's not an easy task. And... Uh, uh, I don't have a good answer for you because it's, it's not like you treat one thing at that point when you start reacting to everything. You, you, you've got to overall look at your overall health and see what other factors are impacting immune tolerance. So um, 
when it gets that severe, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it is complex. The easiest thing I can recommend for you is to just do some very small microdosing with each food protein and diverse list of food proteins to kind of build your way up. And, uh, and at the same time, you might want to look at the strategies we talked about, the 3D immune tolerance protocol, to see if those, those other things can be useful to you uh, as you try to slowly over time increase your, um, your tolerance and therefore ability to add more foods in, which will and be in a positive direction overall. Okay. Well, thank everyone for <clears throat> joining in and uh, look forward to, to the next talk. Thank you. You can find all of this information and more at drknews.com slash podcast. There you'll find the show notes, readings, and links related to this episode. You can also find Dr. Karazian's blog at drknews.com. The best thing to do is sign up for his weekly newsletter, where he will update you on the latest research and clinical strategies related to chronic and autoimmune health conditions. On social, you can find him on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest with the username Datis Karazian.